In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. and gentlemen welcome back to the true life podcast we are here and we are going through the amazing book you've had six different reasons to buy it and now we're going to give you number seven for those of you that might be feeling a little uh, a little sloth out there <laughs> dr <laughs> david solomon the book is called seven deadly sins and we are talking about sloth would you like to maybe uh have a little opening monologue or intro to people who may not be familiar with you sure so uh well, not familiar with me, so I, I'm I'm uh, I'm currently director of undergraduate research and creative activity at Christopher Newport University in Newport News, Virginia, and um, I am a scholar of medieval and Renaissance literature, religion, and culture, and have uh, written a bunch of books. Most recently, this book on the seven deadly sins. Um, I uh, am originally from New York City, and uh, very. Uh, happy and uh grateful to george for this very nice series of of interviews that we've done about this book and uh and and coming to to an end here with with the seventh sin and then we'll tie things up next week but uh i think the sin of sloth is one of the ones that people are perhaps most confused about because they don't know what that what it is uh and it, it is an interesting one because it had the definition for it has changed over time um, basically, we think about sloth as being laziness, um, and that's not entirely accurate um, because there's a question of whether or not the um, the engaging in this sin, if you will, is an active pursuit or is it something which happens? And, and this is where the, the the real debate comes in regarding the definition is being also sadness and depression. And we, we can talk more about that. Yeah. You mentioned in your book that uh, I think it was Pope Gregory who conflated the yeah. two. And um, th that's a pretty interesting story. Would you mind starting with that? One? Sure. So Evagrius Ponticus, who's really the, the, the monk who um, we credit with coming up with this list of sins originally, he had eight. Um, and it was Gregory the Great in the uh, in the fourth century who conflated two of them into sloth. He conflated what Evagrius called acedia, <coughs> excuse me, which um, essentially was a kind of apathy. And Gregory combined that with sadness, and uh, and came up with a sin of sloth. And um, it's interesting to look at the, the the distinction between those two things. Um, and also certainly how we have confronted them in our modern world and our attitudes towards them. Um, but I really do think that it is, it is more the sense of acedia, which is a, a kind of an apathy, a listlessness, um, you know, what kids used to call the blahs, right? Where you just sort of have this just general malaise and, um, 
somebody like Paul Valerie and D.H. Lawrence, who I quote extensively in the book, um, they would really look at that as being a, a sort of a, a characteristic of our of our modern culture, um, that kind of, of spiritual malaise. Um, it's something which they noticed as early as the turn of the 20th century, and it's something which we um, certainly, I think, are confronted with in, in even greater ways today. Yeah, it's interesting to look back in the past and see the way in which it was defined, how it was conflated, and then to think about how it's kind of mixed messaging in the modern day. You know, you mentioned you go you go in depth into how sadness can be depression and how it's mentioned in the DSM-5. And can you talk a little bit about the modern day depression versus what some people may think sloth was back then? Yeah, well, I mean, it, and and I'm not a psychologist, but right. um, but certainly it seems like that word depression is thrown around an awful lot in our world today. Um, and we hear people say, I'm depressed, quote unquote. Um, and it isn't until you start to really look at what it means to be clinically depressed that you really start to understand what depression is all about. Um, when people say I'm depressed, they more often mean that they've got that sense of just malaise and kind of blah. Clinical depression is, is at a much greater and, and more um, powerful level. And um, it, is, it is certainly the case, and the, the, the studies show this constantly now, that the rates of depression in our culture are on the rise, especially amongst younger uh, people and, and children. And it's important to understand what those studies are saying when they are using that word depression. Are they talking about clinical depression and how that is diagnosed? Or are they talking just about this sense of the, the blahs? Um, we saw a lot of it through COVID, and now we're seeing the the effects of it coming out of it, especially as I say, with with children. Yeah, you know, as you as you were talking, it, it got me thinking about modern day doctors who can diagnose people with depression, and then we go back to the Middle Ages or when the you know when the church was powerful, they too had the power to diagnose people. And while they may have had different remedies, they Sometimes they work for both of them. You know, it's interesting yeah. how those two have changed places as sure. as the definition has. And, and and of course the 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 interpretation of what mental illness is, right, has changed so significantly. Just even, my gosh, over the last probably twenty five years, never mind two thousand years. Um, you know, in the Middle Ages, if someone were deemed mentally ill, in general in the Western world, it indicated that they were under the possession of the devil um and the the resulting therapy quote unquote for that was to uh to drill a hole in your head to let the demons escape because the real concern was the salvation of your soul your spiritual self and if in the process your physical self died well that was okay because you were saving the soul which is the eternal part um and that attitude about about the the demons in our mind is something which we mm -hmm. still you know we still use as a metaphor, uh, but the, it, it's a powerful one. And as we've talked about before, I mean, the power of a metaphor and the power of symbols is is not something to be sort of just shrugged off. It is significant, and it, it's interesting the way that the the role of the cleric and the role of the physician have kind of played and intersected over the years. And really, there has been such a strong attempt in the West to separate them. And we don't see that as much, of course, in the East or even in, in, in places like Native American religions where, you know, the, the priest and the, and the doctor are often the same, the same person. Uh, you know, it, it, it reminds me of there's a, a in the closing act of Shakespeare's Hamlet, there's confusion because there is a, a, a figure there who in some texts is referred to as the priest and in others as the doctor, because he really is serving both 
roles. Uh, and the distinction between care for the physical self and care for the spiritual self is something which is relatively modern. Yeah, it's there's so much in there that makes me think about just different topics. You know, when we think of acedia and we think of mental illness, you know, it, it's not to me what comes to my mind is someone who has a lot of time on their hands not because they're lazy not because they're 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 stupid or anything like that but just because maybe they have they have abundance maybe and so now that they almost create these problems in their mind and whether it was back in the past if it yeah. was a person of the court or today maybe it's a daughter of a, say Paris Hilton or something like that not that she is but just saying someone that has so much stuff yeah you no know, you know it's it's I think you talked a little bit about the idle hands doing the devil's work. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, you know, there is a point at which you can have too much time on your hands. And being thoughtful, rational human beings, we oftentimes then um, have that idle time and use that in order to explore things that um, perhaps might not be so good, uh, to dwell on, on, on our problems and to basically, you know, as our as our grandparents and parents used to say, build mountains out of molehills, right? <laughs> um, and make more of something than it might really be. But again, you know, we fall into that trap again of who's to say, right? Objective versus subjective, right? I mean, I can't get into your head and know what your pain is. I can never do that. Um, it, it, pain is not something which can be objectively assessed, um, as much as the uh, the health insurance companies wish it could be, um, <laughs> but it, it can't be. Um, it it is a purely subjective um, emotion, and the attempt to try to objectively assess someone's pain is is really foolhardy. But nonetheless, because we are a a data driven society, we have something like the DSM, which will delineate, you know, the characteristics of someone who is clinically depressed and a physician, a practitioner is able to check off a bunch of boxes on a form and uh, that will get you, you know, the, the, the drugs that you need in order to feel better. Um, but it is a curiosity of our modern life that, I mean, as you say, you know, idle hands but on the flip side, everyone seems so busy. How do we have any time to have to be like that? And so it, it, there's an interesting sort of conundrum there where we, we live in a world that's so fast paced and so busy. And yet we often fall into the trap where what are, we sort of sit back and say, what am I doing? You know, what is this? What What's going on here? Am I, is what I'm doing really meaningful does it have any effect and you know i think that as we've talked in other episodes that sort of self-reflection is is definitely a positive thing the problem is that if you become so um self-obsessed and you fall into you know the other sins of pride and 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 things like that um, that you can't get out of it, and you really then become unable to objectively view the world. Everything is seen only through your lens, and as a result, you know, because you're having a bad day, everything is just a disaster. Um, and and I suppose that in some ways, folks who are um, plagued with with this issue of sloth and and Note, I'm not saying guilty of a sin because I, ha I have a hard time thinking about it in, that, in those terms. Um, the folks who are plagued with that, it's, it's a very difficult thing to, to get out of. Um, you really do get stuck in the mire, you know, and, and, and that, that metaphor of, of you know, your, your feet being stuck in the, in the tar and you just you can't move. Um, but there is, a, there is a point at which... I think um, the writers would say that we can prevent that from happening, but it has to be active. It has to be an active effort at prevention on our part. Left untended, it can um, 
can grow and, and, and really fester. And that's what a lot of the early writers, the early monks, particularly Benedict in his rule, that that's what he's worried about with the monks is that they're going to get, they're going to be sitting around. They're not going to have anything to do. They're going to just be kind of apathetic and, Oh, I don't care about this. And I don't want to do that. And, um, from Benedict's perspective, that will possibly have them fall into some of the more serious uh, sinful behavior. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I I really think it depends on on how you're wired. Sometimes, you know, it seems like some of these sins, the the people that fall the furthest have the opportunity to become our greatest heroes. You know, there's nothing more engaging and more beautiful to me than the man or woman who should have never rose to the top because they had all these demons, you know, or they sure. were afflicted by so much. And then when you hear that story, like I get goosebumps just thinking about it because I know it's possible. And I, 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 I'm a huge fan of Joseph Campbell probably is mm -hmm. probably the big reason, you know, and, but I, I think that that particular power dwells within every one of these sins and especially sloth. Sloth is the, the ability, if, if your feet are stuck in the tar and you are being pushed down, you know, what better way than to rise above or find the courage or to find God or to find inspiration? It doesn't have to be God, but it can be any sort of power that sure. you can harness. And then part of, I think when that happens, you know, it, it, it helps make you a whole person. And one way you talk about that is you, there's an interesting relationship between envy and sloth. Can you fill people in on that? Yeah, well, they seem sort of opposites, don't they? Yeah. Um, you know, sloth is I don't care about anything, <laughs> and envy is you know I care about everything that you've got, and 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 why don't I have that stuff? Right. Um, and so they really do seem almost like polar opposites. <laughs> and uh, isn't it interesting that that we live in a world in which we're we're kind of battling both of those issues? I mean, as we talked about last week, you know, with social media, envy is 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 at the forefront. And with sloth, it can be as well. I mean, you know, we, 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 I'm sure we all have uh, Facebook friends, and I use friends in the, in the loosest way possible, who are, you know, just guilty of that kind of sloth that they, they live their entire existence on, on social media. Um, and that I think is, is a slothful behavior because as a lot of the, the, the intellectuals throughout time have told us that the, the real indication of, of an active mind is engaging with other human beings, is exploration of the self, is a movement. And it doesn't even have to be a movement necessarily forward. Right? You can move backwards too, but, but that movement, I mean, I think the danger is the, is the stagnation. And the feeling that you're, again, you know, that image of just stuck in the tar. And I just, I can't move. I can't go forward. I can't go backward. And that is, a, it's a horrifying image. And for folks who are really um, experiencing that in, in serious clinical depression, in terms of that, it, it can be incredibly, incredibly painful to experience. Um, now, we're lucky, we're fortunate now that we have discovered enough about the brain that we understand some of the pathology about what goes on there. And that for many people who are experiencing this, it is a, it is a drug imbalance in the brain. Um, it's a problem with the chemistry. And that can be, uh, if not corrected, at least augmented um, to the point where you can uh, begin to, to feel better. Uh, but we also know that there are lots of people who experience this kind of depression are put on medication and either don't notice an immediate change, which we know it doesn't work that way. Um, it takes on average, I believe it's about six weeks for the meds to sort of level out your brain chemistry or they, they stay on them and then they start to feel better. So they stop taking. Yeah. Right. So that's, uh, you know, I, I've over the years always had students who've come in, you know, who say, you know, they 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 weren't feeling good they were they were depressed they were went to a therapist they were diagnosed they were put on prozac or lexapro or one of them and they took it for a, a couple of months and they felt better 
And then they come into me the next semester and they're not feeling so good. And I say, so you still on your meds? No, I stopped taking them. Um, you know why? Well, I was feeling better. It's like, well, maybe you shouldn't <laughs> stop taking them. Then. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I, part of this is also our, our um, ability to, to um, admit that we are not in total control. Uh, you know, part of this is, and I'm thinking about things like AA and the 12-step programs. That's one of the first things that you do, right? Is, is you know, I, I can't control this. And there's, a, there's something greater than me. Um, and for a lot of people, the, the hesitancy against getting help, against certainly against being put on medication, is either a sense of pride in that I should be better than this, I should be able to do this myself, or it's that sense of shame that if I do this, it means that I'm a failure because I couldn't cope on my own. When it's become very clear that for a large portion of folks who are struggling with this type of uh, malady, it, it really is a, a, a brain chemistry issue. I think one of the greatest things that's happened in the last 50 years is, is, is that discovery on a, at, a, at a meta level that really, you know, for a lot of people, it's just a misfunctioning brain chemistry. And luckily we have medicine that can correct that, but you got to take it. Um, and and I, I do think, you know, for some folks, it's difficult to surrender yourself and to admit that and to admit that, you know, yes, I need to be on this medicine every day. Yeah, it's it's difficult to to admit that, you know, you you have a problem because then that means all these things in the past that you did might have been your fault. So it's not like you're admitting to this one thing in right. your head. It's like, hey, everything in my life is my fault. You know, that's a, yeah. that's a tough pill to swallow, but you know, I think it's someone, I think all of us have to swallow that pill at some point in time and it's, it can be bitter, you know, and sometimes you got to take them once a week, you know, or yeah. Yeah. once a day sometimes. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's interesting because you, I mean, you allude to it, you know, and I talk about this in other parts of the book is our, our issue with, with the issue of responsibility, right. Yeah. About who's responsible for this. Am I responsible for my own behavior? Or can I, you know, perhaps in, in a way that, that might not be positive, blame it on, well, my, my brain chemistry is just screwed up. Now, you know, if, if I'm depressed, I think that that would be okay. We see this used a lot, though, now in, in the legal world, right? Mm -hmm. It's not my fault. I'm not responsible because, bop, 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 right? My, my, my brain chemistry is wrong or... Um, and, and I think just th there's a danger here. We, we, we've entered a time period in our history as a human species where we are really struggling with how much of what goes on in the world are we responsible for as human beings? I mean, you know, if you just think about it on the, on, you know, think about climate change, right? I mean, are we responsible for that? Hell Yeah. Right? I mean, look at the studies, look at the studies, look at the history, look at the facts, but it's difficult for us to take responsibility for that. Um, and, and, you know, watching what's going on in Ukraine, I was watching a lot of the news last night. I happened to be watching a, a good deal of it last night. I've been trying to, to stay away from as much of it as, as I can of the, the cable news on this because it's, it's 24 seven. And it's yeah. unrelenting, but it is it is just ugly. And what are we going to do? Who's responsible for this? Who's responsible for stopping it? Um, which of course is was you know a major question in World War II, right? I mean, who's responsible for stopping this? Uh, and I saw uh, I think it was early this morning, one of the um, the higher government officials in Ukraine, uh, not the president, but one of his his next in line was was lamenting the fact that, you know, where is Europe? They're not doing anything to help us. And and these people are being destroyed. 
And so, you know, I think we really do struggle with this question of who is responsible at that level and also then just down at the at the level of the good samaritan right yeah um and how i take care of my neighbor um something something as silly as you know do i hold a door open for somebody um just because that's a kind thing to do but i feel that as a responsibility is just that's what makes us human yeah i agree i i I think the answer is that we're all guilty of it. Like all of us have played a role in this and, you know, be it apathy or ignorance, like we're all guilty and it doesn't feel good. And, you know, there's so many moving parts and there's so much, there's so much death and destruction that's of innocent people that like, you know, it makes me want to cry. Yeah. I don't, and maybe that's part of the problem is that it seems like such a big problem. People say, what can we do? And then no one does anything, but you're right. right. I, I think deciding to do something nice every day can have radical changes, not only in your life, but in somebody else's life. It's like that little pebble you throw in the pond, right? And it puts a little, wa little wave. But if everybody does that, I think that that's how the world gets better, you know? And, and if you hold the door open for somebody, there could be a little boy that sees that and is like, oh, that's what I'm supposed to do. And he right. does it forever because you did it. Like right. the yeah, I mean, there's, there's something about modeling behavior for, for, yeah. for the next generation. But there's also, you know, I mean, I, I've said for my entire career, a pat on the back doesn't cost anything. Right. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, just to say to somebody, you did a good job. That doesn't cost anything. Uh, but it, it can make a big, big difference, right? I mean, we talk about all these morale issues at mm -hmm. corporations and in, and in organizations, but a lot of it just comes down to, you know, appreciating the job that people are doing when they are working hard. Um, and, and, you know, I think the hope is that if you do that, then, then more people will work hard because they, they understand that they're going to be appreciated. I mean, if you're not appreciated, what's the motivation? Um, yes, you know, it sounds great to say, well, it's just the the, 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 the feeling of, of doing a good job. You know, and that sounds wonderful. But the reality is we want some kind of affirmation, right? We want external affirmation. Um, and, I mean, it can come down to, just as I say, somebody just sending an email and saying, you know, I saw what you did today and and, you know, that was great. You know, glad you're glad you're here. Um, and that makes a huge difference. Yeah, it it reminds me, I was talking to Dr. Thomas Verney the other day who wrote a book called The Embodied Mind. And it gets into epigenetics. And I'll just give you this one little tidbit from it. He, you know, the idea of Schrodinger's cat, how if you observe sure. something, it changes, right? Yep. He makes the claim in his book that what you're seeing now is what ha we know that when you observe something it, ch it fundamentally changes so what has been the the fallout it's the wrong word what what has been the repercussions of all of us beginning to look at ourselves and observe ourselves and he goes in depth in it, and i think it's a profound statement because it it brings together you know some of the seven deadly sins but it also brings together the idea of observation maybe a greater power watching us and some of the eastern tradition and if you look at the radical change that's happening in our world you could make the argument that it is because so many people are getting beginning to self-reflect with just the the little soliloquy right there that we had about what we can do hey here's what i've done here's what i think like yeah just us talking about observing ourselves is going to have a shift you know if one or two people see this or I mean, I bet you all your students are better people because you're their teacher. You know, you have Thank a great you. observation <laughs> and you're always there for people. You know, I, I think yeah. that you're making the world better. And well, the idea it, of observing is better. It's about being self-aware. Yes. Right. And then encouraging others to be self-aware. Um, and I think that that is something that we have um, largely lost in, in recent years is, is that self-awareness. Um, we become so focused on the external that we've neglected the internal. Uh, we obsess about what's exterior and, and neglect the interior. And, and that's, that's just, it, it, a lot of this is just getting back to old practices, right? <laughs> um, but the problem is today, of course, we've got so many other things complicating it 
and our world is so much more complicated. Uh, you know, I was talking uh, with my students the other day about about Thomas Aquinas and talking about his literary output, um, which was monumental. <laughs> I mean, oh my God, did this guy write? And it was just like you know, as much as he wrote, you wonder, you know, what else did he do? <laughs> but he did a lot. And you know, it's almost this kind of thing where you 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 talk about him and then you say, and and what did you do today? <laughs> um, because I think that we have um, fallen into that kind of slothful slothful behavior, whereby um, we, you know, at the end of the day, when I assess what I did today, and I do that just about every day. <laughs> And I think most people do. Um, it can be a really enriching and positive experience, or it could be pretty miserable. And you realize, you know what? I didn't do anything today. Uh, I sat around and you know, binge watched something on Netflix, and and that was the extent of my my uh, my output. You know, my my literary output for the day was was writing down on a piece of paper or get milk and you know buy bread. Um, but if we fall into the trap of, of that kind of behavior, we have to be active. We have to be moving. We have to be engaging with others. Um, that is part of what makes us human beings. And I just, I, you know, now I say that as an extrovert. I understand introverts have a completely different take on this. Um, something which I've been trying to appreciate. My wife is an introvert, but I really struggle with it because even during when we were during the lockdown at the beginning of COVID, and I was working from home, um, oh my! I mean, it just enough drove me nuts. Um, and every day I had to go out and and get in the car and just even just drive to the convenience store to get a soda because I had to see other people. Uh, but that's me as an extrovert. So I think that people engage in maybe in different ways. And I think folks who are introverts also engage just in a different way that's that's not as 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 obvious as it is for an extrovert, where you know, well, I want to be around people. Um but boy, it and and of course the extrovert introvert thing goes, you know, I mean, it all grows out of Jungian psychology and psychological types and and the looking at your various um, characteristics. But um, it, it, it just seems to me that we are social beings. And it reminds I, me of, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. You know, there's a, uh, there's a, one of the funniest quotes from one, a, a very funny individual. I have it written down, but I want, I should let you read it because it's a beautiful quote from Woody Allen. Did you oh. have it on you right there? Is it which one? Is it the one about the shark? It is the one about the shark. Yeah. So this is at the end of 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 Annie Hall. Yes. Um, yes. When they are um, flying back on the plane, uh, he and and uh, Diane Keaton is Annie Hall, and um, he says to her that uh, you know basically it seems like the whole relationship has has stalled, and he makes the analogy that relationships are like um, like sharks. Um, and sharks always have to be moving in order to uh, to remain alive. And, and I think the line is, uh, what we have on our hands is a dead shark. Is that what he said? <laughs> it is, um, yeah. And, and, and you know, I, I think that there, there's something to that. There's something to the, the, the and this is what the monks were afraid of with Acedia, is that you were just going to basically stagnate. You weren't going to do anything. And that's why Benedict and his rule devises a program of of work and prayer right that the monks needed to engage in it was a balance it wasn't just all prayer they had to work too so you had to be active and you know that might mean you know raising sheep it might mean baking bread it might mean what whatever the case may be but there needed to be both because he understood that we are spiritual and physical beings both we can't only focus on the spiritual because we're, we're neglecting a whole part of what we are. Um, and I think that in Eastern philosophy, I think you see this as well. 
you know, you see it in the Upanishads, you see it in yeah. in the in the, the the writings about the Buddha and and the, the fact that yes, it is important to reflect and meditate, but it is also just as important to to be active physically. And even if that's just you know, uh, the, 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 the monastic pr practice in, in a lot of Eastern temples of just, just walking, literally walking just back and forth while you are meditating and praying, but you are moving. Um, in, in, in the, the, the Jewish synagogue, um, I remember when I was a kid, um, we attended a, an ultra conservative synagogue and the old men, when they prayed standing up, would would rock um it was it was called davening um and there was something to that i never really understood what that was all about i was like why are they doing that and i thought well maybe it's because there's a chanting going on maybe it was something about keeping rhythm no it wasn't that it was more about that that movement about feeling that that being alive because that's the only way you feel it yeah that's a great point it's the mind body connection you know yeah. they they have to work together sometimes i feel when you write stuff down or when you're exercising and thinking it's like your your body is giving permission to your mind to finish the thought yeah that's an excellent you know? way to put it yeah excellent way to put it yeah um, I, have, I have an absolutely brilliant student right now who's graduating in a couple of weeks who has been working on a long-term project with me on uh Jung and augustine and she's oh. been she's writing actually about the mind body specifically about that and the connection between the two in both of their writings i can't wait to read it yeah <laughs> that's so awesome it must be really rewarding to to get to work with with young minds that are curious and agile and and full of vigor <laughs> absolutely is absolutely and who are who are eager to learn yes um, that is just uh, such an absolute treat. Um, that you know, is. And, and, and just, you know, I, I, I always say that the, the, the active mind is, is active always, right? <laughs> um, and in all ways and always. And, and so that, that just um, that yearning and desire to, to learn, which is what, I mean, education, that's what we kind of get off on, right? Um, Absolutely. Yeah, it um, that brings me to one of your quotes from William Blake that says, "The road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. He who desires but acts not breeds pestilence. The yeah. busy bee has no time for sorrow." Yeah, and and, and there's also a line about it, expect poison from stagnant water. Yeah, that's a good right. one. Can you maybe tell the people like how many different directions you can go from that little? Uh, yeah, so I, it's all about you know. It, if you, it, I mean, it, Blake was brilliant on these little, these right. sort of one-line aphorisms. Yeah, expect poison from standing water. Um, if you just think about that, I mean, it is, it is a truth, right? I mean, if you are, if you are hiking, um, and and being a, a a Bronx from the Jew, I don't hike. But if you are hiking, <laughs> um, and you need to find some water, I mean, you do not drink from stagnant water because it could be potentially poisonous. Um, running water as opposed to, to stagnant water. But then, of course, the metaphor of, you know, we just need to be active and moving. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's interesting that these, these quotes oftentimes come from these minds who were anything but stagnant. Um, yeah. I mean, just incredible, incredibly active minds it's 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 really just amazing and the more that i study some of these these folks the more that i just marvel at what they were able to accomplish and and reflect on you know how did they how did they do it um how, how did they find the time and the energy to be able to accomplish what they did um you know i mean i study 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 carl jung I mean, his collected works is I think twenty-two volumes, and that doesn't even include everything. Yeah, um, you know, j just the notes from his seminar on Nietzsche run to about eight hundred pages. Um, it's just incredible. Um, and then the man still had time to to paint, yeah, to draw, and to build his his 
his house in in Bollingen. It, it's just it it's it's just incredible. I I. I I don't know. I don't know how they did it. Um, I don't know how they did it. And we read about them and um, I, I don't know. I've been reading a, 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 a memoir of Paul Valery, a short little piece written by Igor Stravinsky, of all people, who whose whose paths over his path overlapped with Valery's at one point. And so he wrote this short five-page memoir about Valerie. Um, it, it seems as those often are to be more about Stravinsky than it is about Valerie. But mm-hmm. um, but he's talking about you know how they how he would run into him and and he initially says you know I don't know how our paths hadn't crossed prior to this point and it, it it's quite interesting to see the way that some of these folks historically some of these intellectuals how their paths overlapped and intersected in very almost serendipitous ways you know um and and again that's one of the you know i mean i i never would have met george monty if it weren't for the fact that i'd written this book and my my publicist you know contacted me about being on the podcast and i you know but and that has enriched my life now yeah me too and so I think if we look at the serendipity of our existence, oftentimes we can celebrate that. Um, and if we get too hung up on everything needs to be planned and regimented and timed out, um, my gosh, you know, then you're never going to have the joy of just an accidental meeting with somebody. Yeah, it's like in the mystic traditions, they say if you're ready, the teacher will appear. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. It's, it's interesting to think about it. Uh you know, speaking of Carl Jung, he had an interesting take on sloth as almost a gateway drug. Yeah, <laughs> he was concerned that 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 kind of behavior was going to um, result in other negative behaviors. Particularly, he he he's I think thinking about lust. Mm. Um, but one of my favorite quotes from from Jung is in is in um, the conclusion to the book, which we'll talk about next week where he says it's almost ridiculous prejudice to assume that existence can only be physical. Mm, wow. That's a I just, I love that quote because it, it for me encapsulates just so much of what I believe and what I've worked on. And this idea that, that the only thing that we can actually understand is the physical universe. And that's all there is just seems foolhardy to me. Um, I, I was I was reading something this morning, and someone was reflecting about the fact. Oh, it was it was uh, a review of um, Jennifer Egan's new book, The Candy Candy House, I think it's called, um, her new new novel. And she was talking about the fact that um, she had had a dream about someone that she knew, and I believe then she realized that day that the person had died two days earlier. Wow. Um, and so, you know, there are, there's a lot that goes on in the universe that we don't understand, that exists in just this, this spiritual ether. Um, and, you know, for my students who initially come in very skeptical about that, um, I have a very easy exercise that I have them do. I have one student on one side of the room call another student on another side of the room on their cell phone. And say, how did that? How did how did that work? <laughs> so there's no magic, <laughs> because that seems magical to me. Yeah. Um, and so they start to think about, oh, well, wait a minute, you know, yeah. So we've got these two physical things, these two cell phones, but they never touched each other. They never, they're not connected. How did that work? Um, and so to start to to encourage them to think about some more of the mysteries of of existence. Um, the things that the, that, as you say, the mystics were, were really interested in the things that I think we're all interested in, even those who work in the physical sciences are still interested in those. Um, some of the most spiritual people I know are actually physicists. Yeah. Um, which, you know, seems just oxymoronic, but, um, but it's true. Um, you know, I mean, I know that I know there's a, a professional organization for uh, Catholic chemists 
Um, I know that that organization exists and I'm sure that there are others. Um, so, you know, it seems inconsistent to have that kind of belief and then uh, subscribe to the, the laws of the physical universe. But it is, again, part of that sort of acknowledgement that there's a physical existence and there's a spiritual existence and that both of them are really what make the world go round. Yeah, I just, I, I read a little blurb. I got to look more into it, but there's some like just mind blowing work with this guy Hammeroth and, and then Roger Penrose that are talking about microtubules. I, th I think I'm saying that right. Microtubules or something. And it's like these, it's based on the idea of quantum mechanics, but they're like mm. these tiny little tubules that you can, that people communicate with trees and rocks and plants. And it's, it's the reason why if, if you have a dream, something happened to your friend, like, you know, you're connected in this, in this right. spiritual way. It's just probably another way to describe spiritual connection, but it's still fascinating to think about all these ways. I mean, it makes me realize like maybe we are kind of like actual sloths. Like we just don't understand yet. You know, we're kind of in the trees still. Well, yeah. And, and, and that of course is the interesting <laughs> thing about this, this, this sin of sloth is when I started writing about this, a friend of mine sent me a, an email with a picture of a sloth. <laughs> you know, here you go. Uh, and so I, I looked at that one day when I was working on this chapter, and I was like, "Why do we? Why do we call them slogs? What, what the heck is going on there?" And so I actually looked into it a little bit to figure out, you know, well, what is the, the history of the sloth, and <laughs> discovered some interesting things about them, which is that they they um, actually conserve energy by by moving that slowly. Um, that they can actually move rather quickly in the water when they have to. Um, and I think that, you know, it, 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 we look at them and we look down at them and think about it as a negative thing. We talk about sloth as a negative thing. Um, but maybe, you know, we are like the, the, the sloth sitting up in the tree just trying to figure it all out. Um, <laughs> You know, I mean, some of us would aspire to have that kind of time. On our <laughs> end. Um, although I don't know if it necessarily would be a good thing. But I, I, I know, you know, when, when I when I stopped teaching full time and took this position where I am now, um, which is largely administrative, I, I, I used to joke and say, you know, I just want to be able to sit around all day and just read, you know, Valerie and, and Andre Gide and all these, you know, I just want to be able to just to do just for the heck of it. Yeah. And I like, and I was thinking about that the other day because, um, you know, I, I do that some of the time, but I'm certainly uh, incredibly busy with the rest of the time. And I, and I right. don't think it's my nature to, to just sit and, and, and do that 24 seven. I don't think I could get away with that. And part of it is just is my my extroverted personality and my need to engage with other human beings. Um, but you know, I certainly know plenty of 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 scholars who do that. That just twenty four seven they exist in their minds, and um, you know, for some of them, I think it could be a beautiful place. Um, for others, it it might not be, but. Uh, you know, it's it, it's it's funny. I was showing a I showed an image the other day. I was doing a, a workshop for students on graduate school, and we were talking about letters of recommendation and why it's so important to get good letters of recommendation from people who really know you. And you can find it on the internet. There's a great letter of recommendation that was written for the the mathematician John Nash, um, a beautiful mind. Um, and it, it it's it's written on an index card, and it, it says something to the effect of. Um, I've, I've known him since he was 19. He's a mathematical genius. It's, it's like three lines. That's all it says. Um, you know, and, and it, it just, it, it, it amazes me that somebody like, like John Nash, somebody like Einstein, um, you know, some of these, these scientific thinkers in particular of the first half of the 20th century, um, who were able to, to grasp the, the meaning of, existence and the universe and put it into terms that were mathematical that could make some sense out of things in a rational way um you know i i, I love the the story about einstein being in princeton and they used to have a graduate student follow him around 
because he had a habit when he was walking around of just when a, when something would occur to him, he would just dodge into an empty classroom and scribble a bunch of formulas on the board. And so they had a graduate student following him around to copy all that down. <laughs> you know, it, it, um, but there's also a great story about about Einstein in Princeton walking down Nassau Street eating, eating an ice cream cone and the ice cream dripping down his hand yeah. because he's so inside his own head that he's, forgotten <laughs> that he's got the ice cream cone in his hand. Um, and, uh, you know, someone used to joke that they thought that should be the statue to Einstein in, in <laughs> downtown Princeton um, because there's the, the, the quintessential uh, absent-minded professor. Yeah, it's, it seems there's an interesting relationship with people that have fundamentally changed the world, whether it's philosophers being in prison or, you know, mathematicians eating ice cream cones or mathematicians running down the street after their bath naked, you know, (laughs) (laughs) there's quite a few, quite a few interesting, but I think that's part of it, right? You have to see the world different in order to be able to relay it in a way that makes sense or makes sense in your head first before you can give it to someone else. Well, it's why I tell my students that, you know, all research involves creativity and all creativity involves research. Right. I mean, it, it, they're both. And, and I think folks think that if you are involved in research, it, they think about it as being very mechanical and there's no creativity involved. But I mean, when you are working and, and, and for listeners who work in the, in the, the hard sciences, if you're working in a, in a, in a, in a microbiology lab, you can't tell me that there's not some creativity that's going to be involved in the work that you do. Um, it isn't just mechanical. If it were, then quite honestly, anybody could do it. Just write down the instructions and they'll do it. Um, but there is something to research that is creative very much. And there certainly is a lot of a lot of creativity that um, that a, a lot of research that goes into creativity as well. Uh, you know, I, I know novelist friends, you know, People think that when pe- folks write novels, it's all about inspiration, right? You sit at the computer and you wait for the the, 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 the clouds to open and the, the bright light to appear. But the reality is, if you speak to most novelists, there's a lot of research that goes into their books. Um, I had a, a friend I used to teach with who had written a, a novel. It was a, a Western novel. Um, and for a semester, he actually had gone and gone to Germany um, because one scene in the book was to take place in Germany and he'd never been. Um, and the thing was that, uh, for some reason, I don't know why, uh, German culture has always been really kind of intrigued by the stories of the old West in the U S. And so he went over there to explore that. Um, and it was an incredible research trip and it changed the book. Um, probably made the book, I'm sure it made the book better. Um, but there was a tremendous amount of research that went into this creative pursuit of writing a novel. Yeah, it, it seems to, I know it's happened to me on both sides where you know, if you're sitting around in a, in a group or, or something brainstorming or you've, you've worked together with these people for a long time, a lot of the times it's difficult to come up with a new idea until you bring in someone new to the group. That, sure. You know, if you work for, say, I don't know, some organization and you guys are all collaborating, you work well together, everyone gets along, it gets kind of stale. You got to bring yeah. in someone who knows nothing about it or yeah. who may know something, but has never studied with you or vice someone versa. You, know, you can be that person. Yeah. Someone to shake things up. Somebody who's got a new perspective. Um, you know, we, we, I'll often talk about, you know, bring in somebody else who doesn't have a, a, a stake in this and see what they have to say. Right. Because oftentimes you end up um, in an echo chamber otherwise. Yeah. Right. And, and, and you can't hear anything new, but, you know, you, you open the door and let somebody new in, and oftentimes they'll bring a very different perspective to the table. Um, we were just talking about this last night in my museum studies course, because talking about the fact that in the museum world, it's so important to have all the different players at a museum involved in projects. So it's not just about the curators curating an exhibit. You also should have folks there from fundraising. And folks there mm. from patron services and folks there who, you know, run the bookstop shop. Um, I mean, all of that. It, it, it's important to all be um, on the same page and contribute something because those folks are going to see something that that you probably wouldn't. 
because you're not not used to thinking in that way. Yeah, I agree. I um to bring it back just a slot here for before we finish up, sure. like what what part? I think there's two good parts I want to cover. One is how Socrates feared the effects of writing on memory. Yeah, you know, then there was the death of the scribe and the evils of the printing press. And can you talk about how that relates to sloth? Yeah, well, it's this attitude again towards technology. And and remember, technology doesn't necessarily have to mean computers and cell phones. Right, right. Right. I mean, for, for Socrates, I mean, it was a technology, the invention of writing. Um, and if we think about technology in, in that in that sense, right, think about the actual the Greek meaning of the word technology and and explore what what somebody like um, like Heidegger has to say about it in, in his brilliant essay on it. Um, it's it's a connection for Socrates to memory and the fact that if we are offloading a lot of the responsibility for memory onto the technology, he was worried about what that was going to do to us. And, you know, I, I think the, the, the interesting bookend to that is an essay that we've talked about before by Vannevar Bush, the As We May Think, written in 1945, where Bush basically predicted the internet um, and the desktop computer. And his attitude about it was, yes, we are going to offload our memory onto this technology. And that is a good thing. It will free our minds to do the higher level thinking that human beings are capable of. And the great lament in the in the now, what, 60, more than 60 years since Bush wrote that essay is, we have done that, but we haven't really engaged with that higher level thinking. And instead we are, you know, forgive me for saying it, pissing a lot of it away. Um, we're not using it the way that we that we could and the way that we should. We're not taking advantage of it. Um, and I think this is, you know, a callback to what Socrates was really worried about, is that by doing this, we were going to um, really damage our ability to remember things. Um, now, Bush, you know, so many years later says, okay, that's a good thing. We don't need to remember this. I don't need to know all these dates. I can easily look those up on a computer, right? I mean, that's why I never quiz my students on dates. I think it's the dumbest thing to have people remember. I mean, sure, there are certain things, dates that you want people to know, important dates. But in general, to know specific dates of things, is re it's really not necessary because we can look it up just at the snap of a finger. But the benefit of that is what are you going to do with that ability now in your mind so you, so we've cleared out that space you know metaphorically right you don't need to have space to remember those dates anymore what are you how are you going to use that space what are you going to do with it and i don't think we figured that out yet as a as a, as a species what are we going to do with that and how to best do it um you know we we talk a lot about approaching the singularity right we'll, mm. where we'll be able to to download our minds to a computer and then uh, at a later date upload our minds to a new human body or a restored human body. Um, it's an interesting idea and it's interesting for technology, but from the philosophical perspective, I think the question is to what end? What's the point? Why? Why would you want to do that? Uh, what would be the purpose of it? What would be the use? And um, many of our of our technological advances go along with that i mean in 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 the chapter on sloth i talk about how in the 1950s when the remote control was introduced right the tv remote control which you know initially it was looked at as like you know this, this is i think i forget what it was called in the ads it was actually referred to with a with a, a euphemism as being um uh let me find it here i'm sorry uh, here it is. Um, lazy bones. They were called lazy bones, right? Um, it, it, the, the advertisement in 1951 called it miraculous. Uh, but then by the time we got to 2012, when the inventor of the first wireless remote control died, 
um, in his obituary in the Washington Post, it noted that sometimes people blamed the remote control for contributing to obesity. Mm. Um, so, you know, positives and negatives, right? And how do we balance that out? And certainly with a lot of technology, I, I still think we struggle with that. How do we find the balance? How do we find the middle way, right? The middle way that the mystics wanted us to find, right? How do we find that? You know, it, it, it makes me wonder if instead of us clearing up space by downloading stuff onto the computer, is it possible that, like, if the brain is a muscle, maybe you need to build that memory so that you can have higher order thinking. Maybe we right. have went ahead and eliminated our ability to have higher level thinking, to be like Carl Jung, because we can't pass the first step anymore. Sure. And you look at stuff like the brain chip, like, okay, we're just going to try to put back in our head what we already had, but yeah. maybe it's a computer version, you know? It's yeah, like a... Yeah. yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, and and the the the, the sort of cultural obsession with with, uh, you know, downloading apps to your phone that are brain games, right? To keep yeah, your brain right. active, right? Um, I mean, it just seems, it, it's just a kind of funny thing, isn't it? Um, yeah. When you think really about is. it. Uh, but I, I do think that there is something to that. And certainly um, there are lots of writers in the Middle Ages in particular, and it's going into the early years of the Renaissance who are really concerned with our... Um, not only our ability to retain things and have memory, but our potential loss of that. Um, mm. the, the great medieval scholar Mary Carruthers um, wrote several several really good books on this, on, um, on memory, uh, particularly in medieval thought, and uh, how really we just changed our idea of what that was all about, uh, moving from a kind of faculty psychology idea where memory lived in one section of your brain, literally, to understanding that it's much more complicated than that. Yeah, there's a there's another interesting. I heard I heard a uh, Peter Thiel talking about technology. He was him and uh, I think it was Eric Weinstein. They were talking about, you know, we have all these ideas about technology and how great it is and how advanced we are, but they made the claim. If you just took out every screen out of your room, be it a phone, a tablet, or a computer, that room would look the same as it did in 1950. So yeah. really, we've talked about technology, but where is it? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, it, it, you're right. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm just looking around my own office here <sighs> when you say that, and, and yeah, you're right. I mean, I've got my phone sitting here and my computer, but other than that, I have a bunch of lamps. <laughs> I mean, there really isn't any other technology in this room in the way that we think of technology today, of course electricity itself is a technology but, sure um but yeah it, 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 it you're right um <laughs> the way that it has sort of insidiously crept into our lives now with smartphones and 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 smart watches and these wearable devices um is uh is interesting i mean i remember when google glasses came out several years ago yeah um, and uh, it was a horrible disaster because they were terrible <laughs> um, because who wants to be on the internet 24 seven like that? Um, and that's what it was basically. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, you, we, you know, we, we talk about sloth, but like, like you, you've done a really good job of, of equating the world of online living and the world of technology and, and how there are some very dangerous aspects of that. And I think in, in this chapter, you do a good job of, of linking sloth to it, like be it memory or be it, be it people in a slothful behavior looking online and other people who are in a slothful behavior being envy of that. You know, it's, yeah, it's just yeah. a sloth world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I see I see my friends who are on vacation and I'm, you know, why yeah. can't I be on vacation? And, <laughs> well, you know, what are they doing? Them. You know, yeah. I, I see pictures of their feet because they're laying on the beach and taking pictures <laughs> and posting it on Instagram. It's, <laughs> it's, you know, it's just it's, it's such a strange, strange phenomenon. Oh, that is. Well, Doctor, I want to be mindful of your time. Do you want to leave us with anything else? We got next week coming up. But next uh, week we will we will with? wrap up with a conclusion on the whole thing and 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 try to come up with a positive message for the for the future on all this. Yeah. And what about what do you have a blog coming up that you're going to talk about something? I do. I'll have a blog blog coming out probably uh, in about a week and a half. Nice. Um, it will be it will be posted a new posting a new blog, and it will be a lot about a lot of these issues about. 
about really where, where the blog comes from is the the statement that we hear so often, which is no one reads anymore. Nice. And what does that mean? Fantastic. I'm looking forward to it. Okay, doctor. Well, that's it for this week, everybody. Thank you for uh, watching and listening. And you can see all of Dr. David Solomon's links in the show notes below. And um, reach out to him. And we'll be back next week to do it again. Aloha. Thanks, George. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I would just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.